Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the Australian National University's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host Louisa Lim, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the Australian Centre on China in the World. This month, we're going right back to the invention of China, which is, according to one of our guests, much more recent than you might imagine. He argues that, in fact, the name China only dates back 108 years to the fall of the Qing Dynasty. That's a far cry from the 5,000 years of history Chinese officials and textbooks are constantly boasting about. Today, we welcome Bill Hayton, a former BBC journalist and associate fellow with the Asia Program at Chatham House. His book, The Invention of China, is just out, scandalising Chinese people across the globe. We're testing his claims about the invention of China with Dr. Esther Klein, a senior lecturer in Chinese intellectual history at the Australian National University.、Um, Bill, let's start with you. I mean, your basic argument, if I boil it down really, really simply, is that the very concept of China is a 20th century invention, or rather, a 19th and 20th century invention. Could you talk us through how that's possible? Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying, of course, that nobody was living there or that people didn't have a name for the place that they lived.、Um, what I'm saying is that the way that that was thought about was radically changed at the end of the 19th and beginning of the 20th century, and that among the many things that were debated and argued over was the name of the country. Uh, so, for example,、uh, the reformists, people like Liang Qiqiao, you know, were very much in favour of、uh, the name Zhongguo,、uh, central state, or you know, potentially centre of the world, depending on how you how you look at it. Mainly because they could show that it had ancient roots, whereas the revolutionaries,、um, you know, Sun Yat-sen and Co. Much more in favour of Zhonghua because they liked Hua as being a kind of sort of more of an ethnic marker that sort of that, that set out the country and defined it from others. And these two arguments ran side by side, and there were plenty of other contenders. I mean, Jina from the Japanese word was in there, and、um, you know, Hua Sha was also a contender.、Um, and these were political arguments. So the idea、uh, that there has always been a consistent and clear name, I think, is sort of Is undermined by that that little bit of history, and then you go back and you look at how states actually refer to themselves. My reading of academic accounts is that you know most often states refer to themselves by their names. So you know, the Qing state called itself the Qing Great State, you know Da Da Qingguo, and the Ming you know Da Mingguo before them. Europeans had an idea of a place called China, which they'd never visited.、Uh, they heard about this place through the reports of missionaries and diplomats and traders. They filtered it through their European nationalist understandings in the 19th century, and then when they showed up in East Asia in the middle and late 19th century, whether as soldiers or traders or diplomats or missionaries. They already had an idea in their heads about what it was they were going to find. They were going to find a place called China, which had a single culture and a single nation and a single language and all the rest of it. And they projected that idea onto what they saw. And as they encountered、uh, intellectuals and reformers, those reformers bought into some of those ideas. And I talk about how that transfer. Took place in the book, and the emergence of a kind of hybrid idea of what China was through these international contacts. Bill, can you just talk us through how you see the idea of China as entering the 
you know, the lexicon as meaning what it does now. I think the main argument of my book is trying to sort of show that how lots of ideas about being a modern nation state were introduced into late 19th century, early 20th century China with foreigners, with uh, people living in exile or, you know, living abroad and looking back on their home country with new eyes and through the prism of new ideas that they're encountering uh, in their travels. And these are ideas about nation and race and national history and territory and a national language and showing that a lot of the ideas that we have about modern China are reframed in this period so that old information is given a kind of new meaning in order to fit in with the ideas of what a nation is and what a nation state uh, is going to be. So it's not to say that, you know, there was no Chinese language, but there wasn't a national Chinese language, which, you know, everybody was expected to speak in the same way. And in the same way, you know, it wasn't as if, uh, you know, nobody thought of themselves as having cultural connections with their neighbours and with people in other parts of the country. But the idea that there's a single nation, you know, with a kind of homogenous, you know, um, route, uh, which has the rights to dictate who is going to be seen as Chinese across the whole state. These are new things which come in. And so the book's about that process. And by extension, the book is also about how that idea has been used now by the current administration to capture Chinese-ness. Every chapter in the book talks about how a modern issue uh, has some connection to the way this nation state formation took place. So, I, you know, my original research was on, on the history of the South China Sea in the early 20th century. And, you know, there, there is quite literally invention going on, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, things are just you know, quite simply made up. And then once I sort of started to look at, you know, questions about forming a territory and a nation and all the rest of it, I began to think, you know, not to the same extent of being made up, but ideas were being formulated and reformulated in this really intense period that, you know, you had a lot of young men with really simple ideas about how how to reform and, and, and change the state. And they were just had a kind of pick and mix approach to the past about, you know, what, what a race could be and whether we were descended from, uh, you know, ancient Babylonians or, you know, all the rest of it. And these ideas were, you know, it's just a kind of utter hybrid mishmash of Western ideas and, and, and traditional ideas that were kind of, you know, people sitting around in bars in Yokohama in exile, kind of arguing about how they were going to remake China. And they were just grab an idea and they would go, oh, look, here's a fourth century manuscript. It's got an idea in it. Great, fantastic, right? We're all children of the Yellow Emperor. Um, and, you know, and this would kind of be used in, in, in these arguments. And so if you're thinking about Tibet or Xinjiang now, ultimately it's about how the Chinese nation is defined. So let's think about how these people came to think about nation. And so they had to invent a word Minzu to be an equivalent for the English word nation. Or actually, they were thinking of it as an equivalent word for a Japanese word, which was an equivalent word for a German word. So you've got these kind of double translations going through. And so Liang Chichao invents the idea of Minzu, people lineage, Minzu. And then he thinks, you know, okay, so that's that's kind of like what we might say ethnic group now. But Sun Yat-sen 
you know, says, no, no, there can only be a single Zhonghua Minzu, a single Chinese nation. And so this tension between whether you've got 56 Minzu in China, 56 ethnic groups, or one single Zhonghua Minzu is still there right now. Um, and you can see it in the difference between Xi Jinping's father, who was a kind of, you know, he was a 56 Minzu guy. He had good relations with the Panchen Lama and, and, and supported autonomy for the, some of the minorities, you know, versus, you know, Xi the son, who is much more a single Zhonghua Minzu, single Chinese nation guy. Everyone's got to kind of identify with the nation in a, in, in a rather homogenous way. These tensions go way, way back. They go right back to the beginning of the, of the Republican and, and, the, and, the, and the reformist movement. Esther, I'm wondering what your response is to this as a scholar of early Chinese history and having read those very early Chinese histories, does it make a difference whether historians referred to China as Zhongguo, the Middle Kingdom, Tianxia, you know, all under heaven or China? Um, how, how important is that naming thing? I mean, I think that in the early Chinese context and the pre-modern Chinese context, naming was very important. So this sort of name game that we're playing with the word China is not kind of beyond the pale of Chinese intellectual history. It makes a lot of sense. On the other hand, it is just another name game in like millennia of name games, right? So <clears throat> worrying about what we're going to call things, worry, you know, sort of changing the name when, when there's a new regime and everything. Names were terrifically important. And so in that way, I think the kind of worrying about how old China is, is, is just kind of another stage in this kind of invention process. Um, on the other hand, I don't, I don't see it as, um, how to put it, like, China doesn't suddenly come into being uh, a century ago unless you're being very particular about the word China. Um, there's something that's been existing for a long time and there are continuities and great discontinuities and there are changes and, you know, sort of, but I wouldn't say like there's a huge special, you know, moment at which um, China, you know, comes into being um, because of its contact with the West. It's a, a notion of China that comes into being, um, but what what existed beforehand is not quite so radically discontinuous, is I guess how I would put it. And, and what's your general take on the five thousand years of history line that that you kind of hear ad nauseum? Does that make any sense at all as an intellectual historian? So. I once actually did a long investigation on where, where that number comes from. Sometimes you hear 5,000, sometimes you hear more, sometimes you hear less. Where does that claim come from? It comes from the writing system, partly. So 3,200 years is roughly how long we have Chinese characters that we can read that really like, yes, those are Chinese characters, That's they're writing Chinese, like we can prove it. It probably actually stretches a little earlier than that. So that's that'll give us, you know, 3,500, maybe 3,200, somewhere in there, you get writing. And that's where that claim comes from. The other place it comes from is Sima Chen's history, which kind of starts at the beginning. Uh, and by doing some kind of calculations, roughly like the biblical calculations, you know, that kind of get the age of the world as, as that, you know, so-and-so lived for 900 years. It's like that. You get these kind of calculations and you sort of make those calculations and trace it back and you get kind of around 5,000. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the reasons why that 
date was chosen was was Zhang Bin Lin, uh, the revolutionary. I mean, he was the guy who invented the idea of a Han race, specifically around 1900. Um, and in, in order to make a distinction between Han people and, and Manchu people, who were the, the ruling class, ruling caste, ruling ethnic group um, of, the, of the Qing. And he specifically says the Han are the descendants of the Yellow Emperor. And then he uses the dates that, um, that Esther was just talking about and says, well, the Yellow Emperor was born in, in, in this period. Um, and then, you know, which is, you know, approximately, you know, 5,000 years ago. So I think Zhang Binlin gives this idea a, quite a big um, push uh, in his uh, attempts to create a revolutionary movement out of the, the Han race. So you're also, Bill, arguing that the idea of the Han is a modern construct. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, nobody talked about Han race, Han Zhu, before 1900. I mean, there's, a, there's quite a good discussion, I think, to be had about what the word Han meant before that period. Um, and I read quite an interesting uh, piece um, arguing basically that the word Han had kind of left China, Zhongguo, the, you know, the central plains, you know, around the time of the Han dynasty and basically remained in Inner Asia among the sort of the Jurchen and Mongol peoples as a way of referring to the, the other lot, you know, them on the other side of the hills, they're the Han over there. And then when those groups, uh, you know, invade China, you know, China proper, they, they bring that name with them. So, you know, uh, in particular, the, when the Manchu come in uh, in 1644 and invade the, the, the Ming and take it over, they refer to the local people, their conquered people in effect, as, as Han um, and themselves as, as Man or Manjo or Man, Manchu. Um, and it's a kind of an administrative distinction but it becomes sort of reified. It becomes a sort of racial uh, boundary. Partly, I think, the, the, the Manchu themselves seek to maintain a, a difference and hence they divide cities and ban intermarriage and you know, limit people to certain trades and, 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 and define where they can live and so forth. But then it gets picked up by the revolutionary movement as a way of defining themselves against the Manchu um, in, in the 1900s. And you've also written, Bill, that this mythical yellow emperor has been incredibly useful for the current government of Xi Jinping, who have created all these kind of yellow emperor worship ceremonies. And what kind of political function is it now playing? Well, I mean, I think it does play quite a good role in sort of trying to create a, a sense of connection uh, between some people in the overseas Chinese community around the world and their, you know, for want of a better word, homeland, and these uh, celebrations that take place on his on the emperor's uh, alleged birthday, you know, are televised around the world and, and people take part in uh, celebrations. You know, there have been some in Australia, there have been in, uh, in North America and uh, Southeast Asia. And I think there's probably some grounds to believe that there's some kind of united front type activity that kind of marshals some of this behavior you know i guess for some people maybe it's meaningful but and for others it probably seems a bit silly okay so um i wonder if i could backtrack just a little bit to the han race question because um i i fairly strongly object to the characterization that the Han was invented in the 20th century as a category. However, what I would say is that the race might have become like newly prominent. But even the notion of race, of like Han people versus other, 
um, that's quite old. Like that goes back again, even administratively to conquest dynasties, say the the Liao, the, the Jin rather, uh, you know, the Jin and the Yuan, they invented a kind of administration where there was a divide between how they treated Chinese people, however you want to call them, you know, however they however they were called, you know, the name changes. But there was this sense that there is a cultural characteristic type of people who are what we would call Chinese, and they are treated differently to the northern people who, you know, have different cultural characteristics. And even in the government, in the institutions, there was a difference in how the southern people were treated versus how the northern people were treated. And so that does seem to me like if it's not a racial characterization, which maybe it wasn't, but it, it's at least a cultural or ethnic kind of characterization that was very distinctive. And can I just get you, before you go on, can I just get you to date the Jin dynasty for us? Oh my God, this is a test? No, 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 but roughly, <laughs> it's not a test, but just give us a century for, for those of us who are not scholars. So the so Jin dynasty would be 1115 to 1234. My sense is that those uh, administrative differences actually predate that to, to the Liao regime as well. So they're dealing with ethnically Chinese people within their territory. And they just are so culturally different from other people that they have to rule them differently. So they administer them differently. But I, I think, sorry, maybe I wasn't clear. But this is what I was trying to get at. I wasn't prepared to go back that far because I wasn't totally sure. But as this is a name that's used by these northern people, Jin and Liao people, when they come in and they have to rule the population, you know, the settled population, they call them Han. Oh, is they that, call them Songren, I'm sure. <laughs> so right. Song exactly. If people, so Song, so people of the dynasty, but do they also refer to them as Han as well, do you think? Uh, that's a textual question. I actually thought of going to look that up and then I thought, you know, <laughs> that's kind of a long research project, <laughs> a couple hours. Because hmm. my understanding would be that people would have called themselves Hua, but the outsiders called them Han. Uh, Sometimes they, what I do you mean, think? my sense, you know, if you sort of, if I take a guess, some of those names just continue side by side. So they, they're Hanren. They sometimes call them Tangren, even after the fall of the Tang. Songren, you know, the kind of, the name changes. And so, you know, playing a name game is not necessarily the most productive because what they all point to is a set of features, how they make their living, what their kind of religious um, characteristics are, their culture and this kind of thing. So the name doesn't matter as much, although I'm sure there are very specific political reasons to use one name over another. Yeah, I mean, I kind of was trying to argue in the book that the, it's the word race that's important for 1900. You know, that that's, uh, but, but the name is also important because it's how people, do people identify as being, as you say, Songwen, people of the Song dynasty or Song state? Or do they refer to themselves as being Chinese? And there's a difference, our way, in how you use it. Hua, you know, but Hua is <laughs> civilized. It's a cultural term. It's not a national mm. term. So, it, and it's not a race term. So, like, it's civilized, as in it has a set of cultural characteristics. Um, it doesn't necessarily matter as much what your face looks like, although they talk about you know people's faces and curly hair and stuff like that. But you know, it matters more that you have these specific characteristics. And one of the really cool things about early China that, um, you know, it, it becomes a debate all through is whether barbarians can become Chinese, <laughs> whether they can become us, not by uh, sort of swamping them with intermarriage, but rather just 
through pure education. They become civilized. Yeah, during the Yuan Dynasty, this was a huge thing because their rulers were Mongol and they're like, well, can we civilize these guys? You know, can we, can we make them Confucian primarily? Like, can we, you know, <laughs> can we market Confucianism to them? Can we sell it? So just to be clear, at what point did the idea of Zhongguoren become a thing? If you mean the word Zhongguoren, there are people of the central states that are, you know, re referred to as Han. In poetry, for example, you get Han and Hu, like who is the barbarian people over there. I mean, they talk about that. Particularly, you know, they talk about us and then the four E, the four, like the barbarians of the four directions. So, you know, those categories are present in their minds as well. There are some particularly racist pre-modern Chinese where, you know, I just I, I sort of have trouble studying them because I don't particularly like that. But like you have a racist discourse and against it, a discourse of, oh, no, no, like it doesn't matter about different types of, you know, like their face. It matters like about the culture. Hmm. I mean, Esther, just to take a bit of a step back, could you could you talk us through this Yellow Emperor cult? I mean, is, is there any historical basis to this um, figure who's central to this claim on Chinese people across the world? Is the Yellow Emperor real? Is Jesus real? I don't know. Like, there might have been a guy who has this kind of some characteristics. Um, he has sort of miraculous stories associated with his birth. He's sort of a myth that gets changed into history. And you can watch this process. So there are stories about him where he tames the animals and has them fight for him. That same wording gets massaged into a historical account where he gives people animal flags and those are his army, you know, are sort of symbolic of animals, right? So to me, that looks like a myth that, that's gotten turned into a historical figure. But the political uses of the Yellow Emperor certainly, again, don't start in the 20th century. He's used politically and philosophically for all kinds of things. In the Han, there's actually a kind of apparently a philosophical school or ideology, maybe, called Huang Lao about the Yellow Emperor and Laozi. And it's a little bit mysterious what they believe, but they're clearly uh, opponents of a Confucian tradition. So throughout history, this figure gets employed in all kinds of ways. In the archaeological context, it's very interesting because very early on, he becomes the progenitor of all the different emperors and all their different lines who go off into the regions. And so that's where you get this kind of 20th century. He's the sort of father of East Asians because all these, you know, different lines go off. But there's a very easy way to kind of get around that because you just say, oh, well, yeah, this is the so-and-so line of descended from the Yellow Emperor. And, and they have this character, these kinds of characteristics, they make these kinds of artifacts. And I think it imposes a probably inaccurate narrative about these archaeological cultures, uh, you know, that the idea that they all came from one place and went out rather than going all out from trading or mixing culturally, which is what I think more likely happened, sort of different groups come into contact via trade um, in the pre, you know, prehistoric times that we get archaeological evidence for. So it's interesting that so the, this idea the, of the single root of culture, which is something that people like Liang Chao and the reformers work really hard to try and demonstrate in the late 19th, early 20th century, is actually a recurring theme, you know, to go back and argue that there's been this single route for us all. I'm speaking as if I were, you know, kind of a, a son of the Yellow Emperor kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's, that's right. And that's an old idea. 
and and has many iterations in Chinese narratives of the different dynasties. So the really ancient ones, you get, okay, well, there's a single route from here and it, you know, spreads out. Claiming a pedigree back to the Yellow Emperor is a form of claiming legitimacy because you have a culture where ancestor worship is the religion, like the dominant religious kind of practice. And so claiming someone as your ancestor is very important, right? Regardless of how plausible it is. And Bill, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that moment in 1900 when Zhang Binlin brought back the Yellow Emperor and used him as a sort of legitimizing, racializing figure. Well, you have kind of two waves of racial thinking, really, uh, sort of approaching the end of the, the 19th 20th century. Um, so under the influence of British uh, biologist uh, Herbert Spencer, the man who invented social Darwinism, who becomes very popular in Japan, you get an idea of, you know, the first wave of racial thinking that, um, you know, there are white and there are yellow and there are brown and black and red races in the world and they have different characteristics and some are, you know, superior than others. And basically there's a hierarchy with the whites and the yellows at the top. And this is sort of, you know, you'd, you'd think that anybody who was pushed into the category of yellow race would reject this. But actually, you find a lot of people buy into it, particularly among the sort of reform-minded intellectuals in the Qing, because they see their state under threat from the whites, from the Europeans, and they argue that they have to band together to resist them. And, and that might, well, up until 1894, might include the Japanese as well, but certainly sort of Manchu, Mongol, Han people all need to sort of unite and, and, and fight the whites. And you do get a very clear line of, of racial thinking. For example, Huang Zhenxian, who is a diplomat, but also maybe better known as a, as a poet, yellow race thinking very much features uh, in his political thought. Yan Fu, the guy who translates Darwin uh, into Chinese um, and also writes on political reform, uses these kind of Darwinian arguments that, you know, the race has to stand together and, and fight for survival, otherwise it's going to go extinct. But what the reformists are basically arguing is that the Manchu and the Han and the Mongol you know, have to unite and become a single yellow race to stand up against the whites, against the Europeans. And the revolutionaries are basically saying there's no way that the Manchu, the rulers of the Qing state, are going to reform. We've got to get rid of them. But they've got to be, I mean, Zhang Binlin talks about expelling them, but there are plenty of others who talk about uh, exterminating them. So they, this is why Zhang Binlin is so keen to find an argument which creates a difference between Han and Manchu. And he finds it in these old texts and basically says that lineage, that's what's really important. That all the sons, we're all the sons of the Yellow Emperor, we Han people, and we are different from these Manchu people who drink milk and sleep on felt mats. They don't belong with us, and we have to be, I mean, we have to be Han, Han race pride people um, and get rid of the and get rid of the Manchu and that and so you, then you get a second wave of racial thinking uh, in the 1900s. Now, now Bill if you'll indulge me one of the, my favorite parts of your book is the details on just how different the Manchu were compared to the Han in terms of their practices um, so this is a passage which you borrowed um, partly from Jeremy Barme's description of the Manchus in the Forbidden City and you write that quote Every day after morning worship in the shamanic tradition, the imperial household would gather in the palace's central hall while a pig was dispatched. The animal was then butchered and its meat partially cooked. The greasy, semi-raw flesh was passed around the assembled members of the Manchu nobility who competed with each other to receive the best cuts. 
the palace became filthy, its rafters infused with the odours of boiled pork. And the same uh, building, in fact, doubled as the emperor's honeymoon suite. And uh, I'm not quite sure how that uh, how that works, um, how romantic that would be. But I mean, for um, both the uh, revol- uh, the reformers and also for the current regime, I mean, how does the obvious foreignness of the Qing? What sort of problem does this create for Xi Jinping and others in trying to create a narrative of continuous Chinese history? Well, I, I think it's a problem, and it's been a problem right from the beginnings of the, of the nationalist movement because, I mean, the, the Qing state, the Qing empire, has its roots uh, in what's now called Manchuria, outside the Great Wall. The first thing that the Jurchen do is they change their name to Manchu, they conquer the Mongols, the ruler then declares himself to be the Khan of the Mongols, and so already he's starting to have a kind of multi-ethnic uh, state, then invades the Ming realm in 1644, but then expands into Tibet and, and, uh, and Xinjiang. And so you have these kind of five areas in, in what Pamela Crossley has called uh, simultaneous rule. So the emperor can appear to be different people according to the audience. So, you know, can be a Bele for the Manchu, can be a Khan for the Mongol, can be a Confucian emperor for the, let's call them the Han, you know, a patron of Buddhism uh, for the Tibetans. Um, And what it would be to the Muslims is kind of slightly more difficult to work out. Um, But the point is that it appears in different guises. Um, And so it's a Qing state where there are rules about ethnicity um, and lineage and whether you're a member of a military banner unit or not and and the kind of things you can do and where you can live. And when the reformists want to change this state, basically they want to try and keep the structure, keep the emperor, but do have a lot of political change. And so the kind of state would more or less remain in its same form. But then when the revolutionaries come along, they're trying to basically say this is going to be a Chinese state. And half of them, well, I don't know if it's half, but you know, part of them basically saying, we're Han, we'll have the Ming bits, thank you very much, and everybody else can just leave, go their own way. You know, goodbye Tibet, Xinjiang, Manchuria, Mongolia. But Sun Yat-sen, who's a revolutionary, and Liang Qichao, who's a reformist, although they have different political views, both share the belief in wanting to keep the state at its maximum territorial extent. And so they have to kind of do all these uh, ideological gymnastics where they say, well, actually, everybody's Chinese, really, and, you know, there's so many of us that we'll just kind of all smelt together and we'll just become a single nation over time, and then we'll all become Chinese, and that'll be easy, won't it? Esther, I'm wondering if... Bill is dating the invention of China to, you know, 108 years ago. As a scholar of early China, where would you set the invention of China as happening? I mean, I don't think the invention of China is one moment. I think it constantly gets reinvented from, you know, the beginning of when there's a concept of China. And so what you're kind of asking me is like, what, what, how do you date the concept of China? Um, and this is an interesting question for scholars in my field. But of course, scholars in my field are going to put it sometime before the Qin unification, so to 221 BC, because why does it come together? Why bother bringing it together? What's the idea that, like, you know, why should there be a Qin unification? You know, how does the Qin king know where to stop conquering, right? Um, so, you know, he kind of gets as much as he can. He tries to get the northern parts, the, the Xiongnu, and, and fails. 
So he actually builds a wall because he realizes those guys are tougher than than us, essentially. Gets them quite stirred up. And so in the Han Dynasty, they, you know, they have endless problems with the northern people that they've kind of irritated. But coming back to the Qin unification, like it's it's roughly people began to have this idea of Tianxia and a kind of cultural diplomacy, those sort of interstate diplomacy that happens because it's divided into different states. But there's a lot of going around between them. And they gradually, I think, develop a language, a common uh, diplomatic language. And I think gradually the idea occurs in people's minds that this is an identity that could be reproduced politically. There's a cultural identity first, I think. Uh, and then these kind of stories that get told about, you know, projecting it back into the time of the Sage Kings. Um, those are stories from this period. So, I mean, I think a lot of this controversy over this notion of sovereignty and was there an idea of Chinese sovereignty comes back to this concept of Tianxia. Um, so, Esther, I mean, where does this concept come from? Uh, I mean, and, you know, what has it been used for in the past? I mean, in the Zhou dynasty, um, because the Zhou, when the Zhou came in to, uh, you know, take over from the Shang, the Zhou bring in the concept of Tian as a deity of, of some sort. And they kind of invent the concept of Tianming, the mandate of heaven. That's an invented concept with them. From that, you get the idea of, well, everything that's controlled by this Tian, this god. Later, it becomes less and less anthropomorphized. So there's a kind of, there's always a debate about how anthropomorphic this Tian is. But it becomes less and less anthropomorphized, I think. It sort of becomes a notion of it can always be the sky. Um, but there's a sort of sense of cosmic like order about it. Then they call the, the ruler the son of heaven. Um, I wanted to come back to this discussion that we, we were having on sovereignty. And Bill, you write about sovereignty fundamentalism. How do you think that the current government is using this idea of sort of race and Chineseness and sovereignty in the political sphere. So it's, it's a good question. I mean, I, I I see if I can bring them together. Sovereignty is a generally seen as a Western political concept, something that sort of replaced God as a sort of arbiter of, of behaviour in Europe. You know, once uh, you needed some way of dividing states one from another, and the Pope wasn't in charge anymore, then it was sort of countries and, and peoples and governments and it arrives or that form of sovereignty arrives in China you know literally through translation in the 1860s uh, Henry Wheaton's uh, elements of international law is translated into Chinese in 1863 but it's, it's not accepted and it's only really when the Japanese use it in the aftermath of the 1894-5 war that sort of China is forced you know the Qing state is forced to come to terms with what sovereignty means of course the sort of Europeans are saying you know it's all about principle it's all about law and who's in the right whereas of course really what they're saying is uh, we've got a gun and uh, we've got a piece of paper now that makes our gun legitimate and so these sort of Qing states people people like uh, Li Hongjiang they came to see, I think, that sovereignty should have a moral quality to it. There should be something about behaviour, which presumably comes from some, you know, some place in, in Chinese culture, you know, about morality and, and, and behaviour and, and the rest of it. But it kind of seems to me to have sort of cemented an idea of, of sovereignty as having some kind of moral power. 
and as, as an absolute force. Yeah, I've been watching uh, your eyebrows, Esther. <laughs> so at first, when Bill was talking about sovereignty in the 19th century, I noticed you suddenly your eyebrows went up and now now you're nodding. So maybe you just want to talk us through your thoughts. Well, I mean, I, I'm, I'm definitely on board with the last bit. I mean, I think there is an alignment, particularly with the idea that sovereignty should be a moral concept. I mean, in pre-modern Chinese political theory, there is this idea that if you mess up as a ruler, you're going to lose your state. It's it's going to happen, and not just via some supernatural force, right? Rebellions, natural disasters, conquest, <laughs> pandemics. You know, if you mess up, if you don't deal with these things correctly, it sort of imposes upon rulers the necessity to try to behave morally, <laughs> whether they want to or not. And one of the things about the institution of emperor within China is that the political theory made it so they do as little as possible. Say the best emperor is someone who does nothing. You just sit there. <laughs> Meanwhile, every you know you, the, the the sage does nothing and everything gets done. Who does it get done by? It's not actually in political theory context. It's not mystical. It gets done by the people who know what they're doing. And I'm I'm wondering, Bill. It, it seems that. Um, a lot of the ideas that you are putting forward with your book are ideas that are going to be particularly unpopular with uh, the current Chinese administration, you know, picking holes in these 5,000 years of history, uh, the idea of sovereignty, fundamentalism, and even, you know, the idea that the invention of China is a modern concept largely influenced by the West. Uh, what, what kind of response are you getting from China and Chinese sort of historians and readers? Chinese historians from the PRC, no idea yet. Angry uh, Chinese nationalists on Twitter, anger. <laughs> um, you know, but interestingly, you know, uh, not many of them seem to actually have Chinese passports. There is the sort of the tanky crowd, you know, any you know for whom any authoritarian ruler is better than better than the West uh, and better than liberalism. And then there's a sort of I think there might be a sort of ethno nationalist crowd in there as well. But really, what I'm, I'm trying to say is that you know this is this is a hybrid history. We need to see what happened around the turn of the century as a form of cultural exchange and interaction. And the people that did all the intellectual heavy lifting for the reformist and the revolutionary movements were not actually in China or in, in the Qing state. They were outside, you know. So Liang Chichao, you know, was in Yokohama. So was Jiang Binlin. Sun Yat-sen was in Hawaii and then, you know, all around the world. Uh, Kang Youwei was in various parts of the British Empire. Huang Zunxian was in San Francisco. All of these people were looking back at their country uh, from abroad with a kind of a foreign mentality for the first time, rather than being kind of in a huge country where you could imagine that everybody's the same, you know, they were in a place which was different, looking back on it and saying, what makes our place different from uh, everywhere else? And what makes it the same internally? I mean, when you think about what the, what you've described, and uh, you know, the substance of it is very convincing. Um, I mean, isn't what you're describing quite similar to what every nation does. It has narratives that it likes to tell about itself uh, in order to sort of bind the nation together. I mean, I mean, what's different uh, about what China has has done in this process to other nation states? Or is your argument that it's 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 much the same as other nation states? That ultimately, is my argument is that every country is different, every country is special, but China is 
just as special as every other country. Um, but I, I think a lot of people kind of think that somehow China is different and that it hasn't gone through this process of nation-state formation, that it is, you know, a continuous civilization has remained unchanged, and that's somehow different from anywhere else. I mean, every country that you know, presumably had a population has, you know, has got several thousand years of history. But they all go through a process, you know, kind of once industrialization and print media and all the rest of it start to arrive, of rethinking themselves and how people connect to each other and why they're different from other people. And China went through that just as much as the Ottoman Empire did or the Russian Empire did or, or Britain or Germany or Italy did. But, but is one of the problems that we are seeing now that this intellectual space for discussion of Chinese history has become so constrained that it's impossible to, particularly within China, but now even outside China with Chinese historians have a proper discussion about history and sovereignty. I mean, I think it depends, unfortunately, on who you are and what your position is, <laughs> like how, how much you can talk about it. I, it, I would say this, Bill's probably a better person to talk about this question because I learned a lot from his book about like what Qing historians are going through right now, just in terms of calling it like they see it no longer being okay. <laughs> it seems one of the problems, though, is that not only is this narrative not allowed to be kind of openly discussed in China, these questions can't be openly asked, but we are seeing this this move to impose, you know, Xi Jinping's version of history across the world. Well, I mean, we we, we saw this case, didn't we, in, uh, recently, this museum in France, I think it was in Nantes, you know, which was trying to have an exhibition about uh, Genghis Khan. Um, and then they were their Chinese partner told them, well, they it, it couldn't mention Genghis Khan. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there was this kind of idea that, you know, even just mentioning the fact that there was this separate Mongol ruler, you know, was, was too sensitive. You know, um, I mean, that seemed to be taking it to a ridiculous extreme. And, you know, maybe it's just an, an official kind of being overcautious in case they get things wrong or something. But it's clear this is, you know, it's a live issue. Maybe history has never been as such a live uh, issue as it is right now. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> Bill, Esther, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Many thanks to our guests... Thanks also to my co-host, Louisa Lim. Our editing is by Andy Hazel, background research by Julia Bergen, our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danta. Bye for now.